as you have heard, the whole of this discourse which I'm talking about, and in fact the whole of the teaching, is a path of purification. And it works on two levels and needs to be practiced on two levels. One level is the meditation, one level is our daily living. Those things we have talked about concerning thought and emotion are being practiced on both levels. Because of meditation, because of our daily living and substituting that which is unwholesome. I will now talk about the factors of the meditation which automatically are an antidote for our difficulties. Our difficulties have a name in the Buddhist terminology. They're called the five hindrances. In Pali, the pancha nirvaranas. And there are, so to say, five headings of all the problems that beset mankind. Each one of us has one or two which are most problematical for us. We need not think that we haven't got the others but they may not be such a problem. They slowly and gently diminish through meditation. But of course, we need to work on them also in daily living. But this, what I want to explain now, is the automatic cleansing process which happens when we actually get concentrated. Without this automatic process, our daily attack upon those hindrances will be not only difficult, cumbersome, and appear to be a negation of our own instinct and impulses, but it will also not bear the kind of fruit that we would like it to have. But even the meditative antidote will not bear the kind of fruit we would like it to have if we do not work on it in our daily living. We have five hindrances and we also have five factors of concentration or meditative absorption. And each one attacks a specific one of the other, specific antidote. The very first one of the meditative factors I've already mentioned, but I will mention it again, belongs here with these five and also it bears repetition. The very first one in Pali is Vitaka, 
which means nothing other than the initial application of the mind to the meditation subject. Sitting down and putting the mind on the breath. That's all it means. Initial application. Now that is our antidote for hindrance number three, sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness. As long as we keep the breath in mind, we are neither lazy nor drowsy. The minute it disappears, we allow the mind to play its usual games and the laziness arises in the mind, the laziness of lack of determination, of lack of application, and because of that, it can easily become drowsy. The drowsy mind no longer meditates. It is sort of half asleep, not fully, but half. And because it doesn't awake and aware, it doesn't really have any benefit for the mind. The Buddha compares laziness and drowsiness, loss and torpor, whichever words you prefer, with being in prison. And we can see that in our meditative experience, that if we do have a drowsy mind, it is imprisoned in the drowsiness and it cannot be aware of anything. So it has no function other than being drowsy all the functions that it could have, mindfulness, insight, purity, understanding, all these functions are now laid to rest until we come out of that prison of drowsiness again. Therefore, this is the simile for that, being imprisoned. In our daily life, this kind of mind state is usually associated with procrastination. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it the next day. It doesn't really matter. Do I really have to do that? Or I don't feel like it. Now with that, of course, comes a lack of direction. Here in meditation, we have a direction. At least we ought to have a direction. If we haven't found it yet, we certainly will by the end of this week. We're supposed to watch the breath. <laughs> and we're supposed to become concentrated. So we have a direction. We know where, go- where we're going, what we're supposed to be doing. And in daily life, we have quite often the problem of doing a lot of things, but we're not quite sure whether they're the right things to do, the best things to do, whether this is actually what we want to do, or whether we're only doing it because we started it already. And because of that, the mind does not have buoyancy in it. It lacks the kind of energy which is absolutely essential, not only for successful living, 
but for successful meditation. A mind has to have energy. And when it has a, a worthwhile direction, which it has understood to be worthwhile, each mind has to understand that for itself. Then that energy arises. The mind feels light and buoyant, interested, it cares, and therefore it doesn't want to be imprisoned. It wants to be alive and kicking and get on with it. So we have the same problem that we can have in meditation, also in daily living, and need to attack it on both levels. Every time we sit down and put the mind on the breath, we are using an antidote. But since we don't do that usually all day long in our lives, we need to also work with that in daily living. In daily living, the Buddha recommended as an antidote that we learn more about the teaching. In other words, that we have more information on hand. What, can, what gives us a good direction? What will be most helpful to us? Which we can find within the words of the Buddha. And he also recommended to be together with wise and mature people. Now, in this case, this is an extra injunction, but all five hindrances, each one has a special antidote, but all five have one common antidote, and that's called noble friends and noble conversations. Here we are told to, on top of that, to have wise and mature people around <coughs> us. But noble friends and noble conversations is a common antidote to all five hindrances. Noble conversations will help us to keep the mind on a path of growth towards purity. It's so to say the food for the mind. And if we don't feed our mind properly, we don't feed it with health food, it's not going to grow very well. It's not even going to live very well. Most of us are probably interested in health food for the body. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's better to eat brown rice than white rice. But... It's very important to have health food for the mind. And that's what noble conversations are all about. And noble friends are such people that are also working along spiritual growth. They will help us to support the work we're doing. They will help us sometimes when we find difficulties and they will always be available to discuss 
whatever it is that may be troubling us from the standpoint of a spiritual path because we can discuss with exactly the same words things on a worldly level and on a spiritual level we only have the one language and the language has been actually made up for worldly life because most people live worldly lives so we use exactly the same words but mean something else and if we have a noble friend we will have a great support system if we have more than one it's even better Ananda who was the Buddha's cousin and also his attendant for 25 years and utterly devoted to the Buddha never left him night or day said once to the Buddha sir a good friend is half of the spiritual life and the Buddha said do not say so Ananda a good friend is the whole of a spiritual life so with that statement we can see how important it is to have the right people around us we say birds of a feather flock together well we have to make sure that they're wearing the right feathers which does not mean that when we come home from this course we go to visit our erstwhile friends and say to them look I don't want anything more to do with you you're not spiritual enough that wouldn't work out at all well on the contrary if we do have friends that we know for quite some time and which we consider friends it could be very useful if we became their noble friends without trying to be a missionary the Buddhist um, teaching has never been used for missionary work a noble friend is one with whom one can share one's secrets where we can be sure that such a friend will never divulge them a noble friend is one who will have compassion rather than pity and one who also understands on a little deeper level than just the everyday ordinary marketplace level what one's own problems are and how we can deal with them a good friend is one who is available helpful and does not have excuses when he or she is needed it is a relationship which has a lot of love in it but it's a kind of love which is giving rather than wanting to get it's not easy to have really good friends and in order to have them we have to learn to be one the better a friend we are the easier it is also to find one if we have one really good friend we're very fortunate in Buddhist terminology 
And in Pali, a good friend is called a Kalyana Mitta, Mitta being friend. Mitra in Sanskrit, Mitta in Pali. And the Kalyana Mitta is considered to be one's meditation teacher amongst all those other friends that one may be able to find. If one has that relationship to a teacher, one of friendship, one has a great advantage because then there is a heart-to-heart connection. And that heart-to-heart connection is often called in other traditions, not in mine, the transmission. We don't talk about transmission. We talk about Kalyanamitta the good friend, the noble friend. This is something that very often appears in our lives as we progress, as we stay steadfast on the spiritual path and are not to be deterred by the difficulties which everyone has. We find friends that are along that path because then we move in those uh, circles, so to say, where such people are and we find friends like that. And also we probably try to find a teacher. It is our own way of coming forward which then is matched by the coming forward from the other side. If we don't have any interest in the growth towards purity, nothing will happen, of course. This third hindrance of sloth and torpor is one which is very bothersome in daily life because it also generates a feeling of being behind, not being able to finish all the things one needs to do. The feeling as if there's far too much that one has to cope with, which eventually turns into stress and a feeling of never being able to do everything one is required to do. It's very often due to the fact that instead of using moment-to-moment mindfulness and doing each thing one after another without thinking about all the future things which need to be done, keeping the mind awake and aware and alert, instead of that, trying to figure out how to do all the many things which need to be done. That way they don't get done. They only get done if we do one at a time, with strict attention to that one thing. The more we learn mindfulness through meditation, through our daily practice, the easier it is, the less stress. The future is the one that stresses us because it appears to be heavy and foreboding. The present isn't doing a thing to us. The help we can get through the meditation is in this instance nothing more 
then sitting down every day and doing it. Day after day, making a new resolution each evening for the next morning. It's much too cumbersome and heavy to think I am now going to meditate every day for the rest of my life. One may be so lucky to live another 50 or 60 years, one can't think that far, it's impossible. So what we do is every evening we go to bed and say, I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning. And that is manageable. And as we come home, we may make another resolution. I'll meditate tonight. If the mind is encouraged to do that, it will have less and less sloth and torpor, less and less laziness and drowsiness, less and less futuristic worries. It will stay more and more in the moment. Also because it is quite sure that it's doing something worthwhile. And that encouragement we have to give ourselves. Nobody else will do it. And if they do, we'll probably resent it. If somebody else says to us in the morning when we get up, come on, you've got to meditate. We have to handle that on our own. The second meditative factor in Pali is vichara, which means retaining the meditation subject, continu continued application. The continued application to the meditation subject. It is compared to the first one, hitting the gong, and the second one, to the stone that remains. The initial application is hitting the gong. The continued application is the tone that follows. Continued application means that we stay on the breath for some length of time. This is the antidote for skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to a walk in the desert without a road map, without provisions. Obviously, going around in circles, not knowing which direction to take, and in the end, being overrun by bandits. Skeptical doubt is a kind of mental disturbance which tells us that it might be better to do something easier than meditation. How about Tai Chi for a change? One doesn't get such hurting knees. Or it tells us there must be better teachers or better situations or people who don't request one to sit for 45 minutes, only for 20, and all sorts of doubts that arise because one doesn't particularly feel physical comfort. 
and also not mental comfort. And the doubts which arise are due to the fact that one cannot commit oneself. And so one finds quite easily something that's wrong. One finds just one thing that one can't agree with, and one can find dozens, of course, and that is enough so that one doesn't have to commit oneself. One, one may try it and say, well, you know, they talk about sense contacts. I like them. Or they talk about dukkha. Well, who needs it? Whatever it is that one picks out, one can pick out dozens of things. And with that, there's no need to commit oneself anymore because there's something wrong from one's own opinion. The person who cannot commit himself is the one who cannot really give him or herself to something or someone. We have to learn to do that eventually if we want any results from a spiritual path. The spiritual path has to be lived on both levels, heart and mind. We have to understand what it's all about. It has to be simple enough so that we don't have to ponder a great deal where the direction is, where we're going and how to do it. It has to have exactness in it so that the mind is under no doubt what it needs to do. When we understand it, then there has to be the heart quality of devotion to it. Because only then will we be able to do those things which we have understood. A spiritual path is the closest relationship that we can ever enter into. There is no closer relationship because if it is with another person, it's always out there. But the spiritual path is within ourselves. Now, if we have a relationship with another person and we understand that person but don't love that person, it's short-lived. It's interesting for a little while. We hear all the things that are being talked about and say, hmm, very clever, and that's it. If we have a relationship with another person whom we love but do not understand that person at all, we will feel quite uneasy about that relationship. And it's also short-lived. Or it's not a happy one. The only happy relationship we can have is if we understand and love both. The devotion which we can bring to this practice has to be based on the fact that we recognize its validity for ourselves, not for others, for ourselves, and that we begin to love what we're doing. And that happens 
the moment the mind can stay on the breath. Because we have two factors arising. The first one is, aha, it's possible. I didn't think so, but at least it is possible. Secondly, aha, I can do it. I didn't really think I could, but I can. So there's confidence in the teaching and confidence in oneself arising. As simple as that. Just stay on the breath. Stay on the breath for not even hours on end, just for some time. The confidence which one gets about one's own ability is invaluable. We have to have confidence in ourselves that we can actually do this. Because if we don't have that, we will constantly be wavering. If we shouldn't tackle something different. And then we'll tackle something different, and again we have no confidence in ourselves, and again we'll tackle something different. It's like trying to climb a mountain, and instead of going straight up the pathway, it's going around and around and around, not even in a spiral, because it's a big mountain. There are many possibilities, and if we want to try them all out, we have to keep going around the mountain doesn't mean that other pathways aren't valuable and right. It just means we've got to pick one and stick with it. There's no substitute for that. Pick it and stick with it. The self-confidence which arises that one can do it helps very much. <coughs> it also helps to recognize the fact that these are not just words but experiences which can be had. The same applies to substituting one's unwholesome thinking in daily living with, with wholesome thinking. Having done it once, twice, three times, an enormous amount of confidence arises. It's possible, I can do it, and it's extremely helpful. This teaching helps me. It all has to be personal experience. We always compare that to the taste of a mango. If we've never eaten a mango and we ask somebody, what does it taste like? That person might say, it's very sweet, it's very juicy, it's delicious, it's soft. But if we haven't tasted a mango, we might think they're talking about a peach. It has the same qualities. But if we bite into a mango, we don't have to ask anybody what it tastes like. We don't even care to ask anybody. We don't even care to discuss it. We know exactly what a mango tastes like. That's all that counts. And from then on, we can talk about mangoes quite knowledgeable. <laughs> it's the same with this having done it we don't have to ask anybody what does it feel like to be concentrated we know the Buddha compared all these hindrances that we have these five also 
to certain water ponds. Now the one with sloth and torpor, the water pond is compared to one that has a lot of mud in it. We can't see our own likeness when there's mud in the water. It's like the mind is foggy or even muddy. Skeptical doubt, he has compared the water pond with one in which lots of water plants grow. Again, the water is covered and we can't see our likeness. It appears to have some sort of attraction because of all the different water plants, but we can't see ourselves, so we can't see the right part. Again, in daily living, he has given the same antidotes as for sloth and torpor. Noble friends and noble conversation, learning more about the Dhamma and having wise and mature people around one where we can discuss and ask questions. Now, if the meditation comes to the point where the, ma- the mind does stay on the breath, then we have a great deal of support <coughs> for our difficulty of doubting. The total skeptical doubt only vanishes completely when we have the very first experience of the Nibbanic element, which is technically called stream entry. This is one of the three fetters that then disappears completely. So until then, we will occasionally have doubts. Doubts about our own wisdom, doubts about our own capabilities, doubts about whether we're doing it correctly, doubts whether we should continue, and therefore we do need the noble friend. The doubts will be mild. They will just be mild enough to throw up an idea that we can talk about. Until then, until we actually concentrate, our doubts are so massive that we very often do not continue to meditate. The third factor of meditation is called in Pali piti, P-I-T-I, not the English piti. Piti. We translate that into rapture, bliss. It's enough to call it pleasant feeling. And this is the first step into meditation. It's not the aim and the goal of meditation by any means. But it is the first step where we start to meditate rather than using a method. The breath is our method. We can compare it to a key. This key has to be held in hand long enough and steady enough so that we can eventually stick it into the keyhole. 
and turn the key to unlock the door. Have we done so? Have we unlocked the door? We certainly no longer need to fumble around with the key. If we meditate steadily, we can leave the door open and don't need the key at all. Any method, whether breath or otherwise, is the key. We have an inner mansion which consists, symbolically speaking, of eight chambers. And when we turn the key and open the door, we get our foot over the threshold into the antechamber, so to say, the entrance hall. And in that entrance hall, we experience one of many different kinds of sensation. The sensation is physical, physically based, but it has nothing to do with the actuality of the body because it changes the body sensation. Now, as you're sitting here, it feels heavy. You can feel pressure and the body seems to be a lump. The sensation which arises at the time when the concentration has been good enough and long enough is entirely opposite. It's light, it's buoyant, it's transparent, it can be floating, tingling, lifting, uplifting, raising. Seventeen different ones are mentioned in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, from experience there can be many more than that, depending on the person that is having the experience or whatever words they're using for them. There is no doubt about it. It is utterly pleasant and utterly desirable. And therefore, one knows that something has happened which is different from the usual. In fact, it often feels as if the mind had taken a turn. It doesn't, of course. But as it is thinking and trying to stay on the breath, it is still on the same level that we know from our everyday activity. It is on the level of our daily thought processes. As, so, as soon as it has concentrated long enough and has entered into this state, it comes to a different level of awareness. It has become, become able to get in touch with inner purity. And because of that, there is this very exquisite feeling. We all have the inner purity. Nobody is without it. We just have to get at it. And for that reason, we try to sit and concentrate over and over. We keep noble silence. <coughs> We do everything differently from our ordinary life so that we may be able to touch upon that inner spark. 
when we do the very first time when it happens the usual reaction is goodness what was that which finishes it very um, quickly immediately it uh, is the perfect antidote for having the feeling to think what was that but it's very common and happens to practically everybody the next thought usually is how am I going to get this back (laughs) (coughs) which of course also defeats the purpose it's counterproductive because if one then sits down and has that thought in mind I'm going to get this back whatever I'm going to do this is what I want that will not happen what, we'll have, what one has to do is just sit down and concentrate again. That's all. This is nothing but a result of concentration. Then if one gets it the second time, one will hopefully refrain from thinking, thinking goodness, what was that? And from I'd like to have it back, but just stay with it. That's the meditation subject. Not the body as such, but the sensation. With that as a meditation subject, it will sooner or later dissolve because the concentration dissolves. At that time, it is of great importance to watch its impermanence, to see how it also disappears. Because our problem of clinging is connected to those things which we consider lovely we don't cling to the painful we don't cling to that which we don't like we're very happy that it is impermanent and disappears again in fact it should disappear quicker its impermanence is a great boon to us but the impermanence of that which we like, which we appreciate, which we'd like to keep. That is what we do not want to have in our lives. And that creates a clinging which prevents us from liberation and freedom. When we cling, we can't go. So here we have the perfect moment of watching the lovely disappear. It slowly and gently disappears and we can watch that with equanimity because at that moment the mind feels quite at ease when the thought arises oh that was nice I'd like to have it back recognize that as clinging to it so the first step is staying on it the second step is watching it disappear and the third step is recollection how did I get there? What exactly did I do? Now it isn't uncommon that a person finds a specific trigger which helps to have better concentration. It could be sitting differently. It could be eating less. More is highly unlikely. It could be thinking differently it could be more mindfulness during the day it could be a certain physical 
feeling that has helped. There are many possibilities. If one can become aware of one particular trigger, that's very helpful. In any case, recollect. What did I do? Did I keep very quiet? Did I not speak at all? What was it that helped me this time? And so we look upon the whole pathway to the meditation, but particularly from the moment that we sit down. We may actually have done something which stands out. If it doesn't, we'll have to do the same thing over again. Concentrate, stay on the sensation, on that pleasant feeling, watch it disappear, recollect. Eventually, everybody finds their pathway so that it's no longer potluck. As long as it is potluck to get in there, it isn't meditation yet. It has to be the pathway to be able to do it at any time, under any circumstances, whenever one wants to. And for that, one has to find that particular way of entering. I have suggested to you that you start each meditation with loving kindness for yourself. Maybe one particular way of looking at yourself may be more helpful than another. Whatever it is, use it. Being appreciative of your effort, being your best friend, or um, looking at yourself acceptingly, whichever it may be, anyone that you find is useful, use it. This step has a very strong Antidote is a very strong antidote for that quality in us which we, which nobody likes, we ourselves and nobody else either. Ill will, anger, dislike. In the five hindrances, it is called ill will, but it means all the negativities that we bring up against whatever. Now, ill will is compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease. The bile comes up. Now, who's having this disease? Of course, the one who's angry, not the one we're getting angry at. He also compared the uh, water pond to one in which there was a lot of wind and the waves are going high. So we can't see our likeness. It happens... I'm sure that everybody has had that experience that when we really get angry, all we know is the anger. In the end, we mightn't even know anymore what we got angry about. Sometimes people argue and argue and get very angry at each other and stay angry at each other. And then, if they really think about it, it was such a small matter that they got angry about that they can't even understand it anymore. We all we see is the anger. We don't see the reality of ourselves anymore. Anger is something that nobody likes in him or herself. It's also not supported by society. It's considered to be not very nice. And therefore, it is something that everybody would like to get rid of. 
most people don't know how. Most people think that the way to get rid of it is to get away from that which makes one angry. To move. Which is a fallacy. Because if we move away from one thing, there's sure to be another. Anger is a quality within which we do not remove by removing ourselves physically. We have to do something about it inside of ourselves. Loving-kindness meditation is one antidote for it. Loving behavior is another. But if we are able to get to this point in our meditation, which I've just described, it is an automatic remedy. Because while we are in a state of very exquisite sensation, we couldn't possibly be angry, but it also has a residue. Obviously, it disappears. When we open our eyes or when the meditation is over, it is impermanent and disappears. But it has a residue. And that residue is one which is very important to every meditator. The mind knows from personal experience now that it has a home where it can go to where it feels wonderful and at ease. And therefore, the things that happen during the day do not have the same impact anymore. They still happen exactly the same. Everybody behaves exactly the same as before. But it doesn't touch one so much anymore because the mind knows when it gets home at night it can go to its own home. Now the body has a home. It has a roof over its head. It has a bed to sleep in. It has a chair to sit in. It has good food to eat. And it feels quite comfortable. It might sit in a nice, easy chair. But what about the mind that sits inside this comfortable body? It may still be churning over all the things that happened during the day and all the things it would have liked to have answered if it had dared, or all the things that were said and one didn't agree with, or whatever it may be, or what one has read. The mind hasn't got a home. It doesn't feel completely at ease, which is another reason for being tired. The mind which is not totally at ease is a mind that gets more easily tired. So now, knowing that it can get back to this very lovely state, it knows it has a home where it feels just as comfortable or more comfortable than the body ever felt in its own home. And therefore, the day is much easier to bear. And all the people whom we don't like or have met and don't agree with are much easier to bear. Our own difficulties are much easier to bear. So we have an antidote against our anger because of the fact that we are not so concerned 
with all that happens around us. It's not that we become totally disinterested, but we do not have to respond to it all. The more often we do this meditation, and the more often we get into this state, the more purification. You can compare that to having weeds in a garden. As every gardener knows, weeds grow better than flowers. And if we don't pull them, or at least cut them down, they take the nourishment from the soil, they take, they cover the flowers so that the flowers don't get the sun or the rain. So we have to do something about the weeds if we want a nice garden. We can compare our heart and mind to such a garden. We do not uproot our weeds through this process of meditation, but we cut them down. And the smaller they are, the less strong are their roots. So that when we finally come to uprooting them, the work is much facilitated. Also, they don't take as much nourishment out of our heart and mind, and they don't cover over the beauty that exists there. So this is cutting down the weeds, cutting down the weeds of anger, ill will, dislike, cutting them down to manageable proportions. They are unfortunately only uprooted at the last stage before being enlightened. <laughs> so we do have to do something in the meantime, don't we? And this is what we can do and need to do. Having decided to meditate, this is the way to go. It's not easy to become enlightened, to say the least, but we can have the benefits of our meditation in daily life almost immediately. Now I like to say a warning. If you feel that your meditation is not good enough to get to that concentrated state where you can have that very pleasant feeling, please don't feel less than others, don't despair, don't think meditation is not for you. I'd just like to remind you that I told you where if at the, the first evening that there are immediate benefits whether you get really concentrated or not. But you need to know about this pathway, which is the one that the Buddha took, because then you know the direction and you know the possibilities. And therefore it's extremely important that one has that at least that information on hand. If one has already been able to concentrate, then it's even more important to have that information on hand. The immediate benefits, which I already mentioned to you, are that any concentration is purification. Labeling our thoughts is getting to know our habitual thought processes and makes it possible for us to label in daily life. 
being attentive to the breath even for a short while means that we have come into the present rather than into the future or the past. There's only one place where we can live and that's in the present. This one moment. There is no other. Everything else that we think about has either happened before or will not happen in the future or we hope that it will. None of it is real. So these are the immediate benefits. But if we can come to this point where we get the third step of the factors of meditation, which have the, are the antidote for the three hindrances which I've mentioned so far, we have entered into a relationship with ourselves which is totally different from the one we have known until now. We know that there's something within us from personal experience which is pure. We know that there's something within us which is capable of giving great happiness. Because happiness arises simultaneously. I will explain the remaining two factors this evening because it's impossible to retain so much. But the happiness which arises within is so important because it is our first inkling and our first experience of knowing that we've got it in here. We don't need it from out there. It's our first step into independence from the world. That doesn't mean that we leave the world. We can't leave the world. We've got a body. It's got to live in the world. There's nothing to leave. What is there to leave? The trees and the grass and the houses and the people? There's not to leave. We can't leave it. We're there for the duration. We're going to leave it eventually in a casket. But at this time, we're here. But we are expecting something from the world which it cannot provide. And therefore, there is dukkha everywhere. You know the word dukkha now, don't you? Somebody said they didn't know the word dukkha. Now you know it, huh? The, we expect the world to provide happiness for us. If we just do it cleverly enough, if we don't make too many mistakes, if we meet the right people and do the right things, we expect it to work. And then we're always surprised that it doesn't. Something happens and we're not totally happy. In fact, we get so used to not being totally happy that we don't know anymore what it's like to be totally happy. It's very rare to meet someone who knows what it feels like. It's a real indictment of humanity. Because we expect what cannot happen. We are in the search for something which doesn't exist. Like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It doesn't exist. We know that. And yet we're always looking for it. But having had the meditative experience of getting inside of oneself, we have the first experience and indication and inkling that there is such a pot of gold. 
but that the rainbow ends inside. And then we'll be far more inclined to look for it inside of oneself rather than out there. doesn't mean that our life has to be totally turned upside down. Sometimes people misunderstand that. That's not the case at all. What it means is that our attitude and reaction to the world changes. We enjoy what is enjoyable, but we don't expect it to give us lasting joy. And we don't search for it constantly. So we have found the entrance into a different way of being. There are two more factors of meditation. There are two more hindrances. I'll talk about them tonight. I'll give you a few moments to ask some questions if you like. Yes. Sorry? I, I don't really yes, what was the word? Um, goal orientation. Goal orientation. Once you key into something like this, is, is there a danger, well, there's a danger of, of um, striving rather than just letting it happen? Well, in the Buddhist dispensation, striving is considered to be a very good thing. In fact, it's absolutely essential. If you just let it happen, the mind will keep on thinking. It thinks, 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 thinks. And that's what it does. (coughs) Striving is considered to be an essential aspect of spiritual purification. It doesn't just happen that we love the world. We may think we do, but when we come up against our neighbor, we'll find out that we don't. So, striving is hard work, yes, and that's what it's all about. Goal-orientated, yes, there are eight steps, and they need to be taken. And there are also seven steps of purification, they need to be taken, one after another. The danger does not lie in striving to do. The danger lies in the fact of only looking for the result rather than applying oneself to the effort. That's the danger. We have to do, we have to see the difference there. And then, of course, the one other danger which I've already uh, mentioned is the very first reaction which is almost, um, everybody has that, says, gee, that was nice, how am I going to get that back? That, of course, is, and one practically everybody recognizes that to be a fallacy themselves. They don't have, even have to be told. But it's almost an automatic reaction. And later on, of course, as one does it, and goes through the various steps of the meditation, this very first one no longer seems very attractive. In the first instance, it's the best thing that ever happened to one. But later on, it doesn't has no attraction anymore. It's just a matter of going through it. 
So striving, yes, but with the effort has to be made and not just the result looked at. You know. What else? You were talking about triggers earlier. I noticed that you don't actually use lighted candles or incense. Do you not agree with those kinds of... Oh, yes, I fully agree with it. Incense uh, makes me cough. <laughs> and lighted candles. Well, I didn't want to burden Gaia House with having to give more candles. Um, I do agree with lighted candles very much. And on the last day, I will also explain the uh, significance of symbolism, why we put them on a shrine and what they mean. Um, but I thought, well, they don't have so many candles. Maybe they don't want to buy any more. So I won't light them. I'll just leave them there. But we will light them eventually on the last day. And we'll even lo- use uh, incense too. When you, when you feel you, when I am in the desert, a major thing for me right now is trust. Mm-hmm. I cannot push a button and it's there. It's mm. just not there. And then I ask myself, trust in what? And then comes the usual answers in the unknown, in the Dharma, in the here and now, in love, and, and nothing works. What do I do then? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, did you used to have the trust or never had it? You never had it yet? Probably seconds. Uh, I see, okay. <laughs> right. Um, well, the trust, which is the same as the overcoming the doubt, will arise when you yourself have the experience of being able to concentrate on the breath long enough so that the concentration already brings peacefulness. And I do not meditate, so therefore there is no trust. Yes. Um, otherwise, without the meditation... To gain uh, trust is easier for some people than for others. Those that can love easily. That The Buddha explained it like this. He said, the very first step to get onto this path and stay there is to see one's own dukkha. If one doesn't see one's own dukkha, one isn't going to come here anyway. So one has to see one's own dukkha. There you don't need any trust. All you have to do is just recognize what goes on. Okay, that's the first step. The second step is to hear the true Dhamma. Such a Dhamma, to hear the true Dhamma. And then have enough wisdom to recognize it, that it's true. And having heard it, and he doesn't talk about meditation at this point, having heard it, Joy arises in the heart that this true Dhamma is uplifting, is elevating, brings the mind onto a level which is transcending the everyday pedestrian kind of consciousness. And with that joy arises confidence or trust. So if that joy doesn't arise, then the confidence will not arise. But these are, the ones I've just mentioned, are the first four steps 
on transcendental dependent arising, which is actually a key teaching, but obviously in seven days I can't teach you the whole business. So, but these four steps are very uh, significant. One's own dukkha, recognition of it, and knowing that the world isn't going to do anything about it. Um, then being able to hear the true Dhamma, recognizing it, and becoming joyful from it. The joy which arises is an inner feeling of buoyancy, of uplift, of hope, of um, um, confidence that now there is a path. And having felt this joy, then there is the confidence. So we'll see what happens, huh? (laughs) Okay, what else? Yes. Breath being like getting into a warm bath, and I find I'm frightened of getting into the bath. Oh dear! And things get a little bit pleasant. It's not just what's that. It's what's that in a gentle way. I think it's that that feeling about it. There's as well as the slope and the relaxation. There's also quality of tension of uptightness. Little. Am I understanding you correctly? You're saying there is a pleasant feeling but you're afraid to get into it. Is that what you're saying? Right. And even when there isn't a pleasant feeling, there's still the fear of letting yourself go into the breath. There's nothing anybody can do about that except time. What you will have to recognize, and this may help you to recognize, it's the ego that says, I don't want to be cut out of this. I'm taking part. I do not wish to be put aside even for a second. And because of that, there's the fear of going further because the ego is pulling back. The moment we let ourselves go into the breath and actually become concentrated and then go further, the ego has nothing to say. I can assure you and guarantee in writing, if you wish, <laughs> that the minute you stop, it's right back, in full force. It doesn't get uprooted. It only gets uprooted on the different stages of enlightenment, which are stages which have to be preceded through insight. But this is the way of making the ego at least shut its big mouth for a little while. <laughs> and it's therefore extremely pleasant. And because of that, we also have a personal experience of the fact that life is much nicer if we didn't have so much ego illusion. Now, ego illusion does not mean egocentricity. One can be very altruistic, but we still think it's me being altruistic. Right? Do you understand that difference? So this is what's holding you back. And knowing that may be little helpful, but in other, um, other than that, it's a matter of time, doing it so often until the ego finally slips for a moment and doesn't hang on so tight. And that moment, you go into it. You just have to give it time to make that slip. You can't push it too hard. You can push it a little, but you can't push it too hard because it's a stronger thing in each person. It pushes right back. 
So push it a little, not too much. Okay. And that one dot in the meantime is labeled the car. Sorry, label the? The car. Yes, yes, yes. In the meantime, look at the ego and laugh at it. <laughs> think, think it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a nuisance. And uh, it's always rearing its ugly head, making trouble. And uh, it wants to, you know, be there and be attended to, and therefore it doesn't allow one to become concentrated. So, but if one knows that, it may be a little helpful. Let's see. How did the bathtub go for you? Confusing. Sorry? Confusing. Oh. <laughs> you didn't get into it. No. So it's still pulling back. Yes. Sometimes... Not for everybody. Everybody's different. But sometimes it helps to actually relax the body. Now we sit nice and straight like this to meditate. We should sit relaxed anyway, but straight. And sometimes if we can feel the concentration coming on, it may help to give the body a relax relaxation, which is as if like this. It's not, one doesn't move the legs or anything, it's just that the, the upper part of the body isn't quite as tight. It's like that. It can help. Sometimes because it's... The hmm? Sometimes the stomach is quite tense if you yes. do your up right. That's right. And then you keep thinking, you can reach a point. That's right. And with this motion, the stomach goes. It's like pushing the pelvis forward just a little, tiny little bit. It goes like that. And you go into it. But if there's fear, it also can be helpful to investigate the fear, to question it. That's an inside path. I haven't really got into the inside path yet. We are on the path towards calm. But fear is a very, I mean, it's a human condition. And it's a very interesting uh, inquiry if one remains objective. It's not your fear, it's just fear. So inquire into it, what am I afraid of? And then, when you get an answer, use that answer as another question. Now, if the fear, if the answer is, for instance, I'm afraid to lose control, okay, because that is the fear, then the next question is, am I in control? In control of what? Am I in control to the point that I only think happy and uplifting thoughts? Or am I not? So if I'm not in control, what am I afraid of? That's the problem. That's the ego problem. It wants to be in control. Control means that it has a thinking um, ability which goes on and on and on so that it knows it's there. I think, therefore I am. And... Uh, the, uh, the control bit is an illusion, but that's where the fear comes from. So inquire into it, look at it yourself. Don't believe me, look at it yourself, okay? Both of you. <laughs> <coughs> yes? How do we stop being attached to the breath? Attached to the breath. Attached to the breath. Why would you be attached to the breath? Do you love it so much? Is that it? I, I just can't stop uh, following it. 
Well, I think everybody else would love that. <laughs> do you not do you not get any distracting thoughts? Oh, I see, yes. Well, then the thought must be very short-lived. If you have your, if you are attentive to your breath, as you say, that it gets in the way, then the thought is very short-lived, is it? Right. Well, in that case, you don't need to label. It's so short-lived that you are actually continually um, returning to the breath. Do you have a feeling as if the thoughts are in the back of your head and the breath in front? You have that? Yeah, okay. You don't need to label. That's called neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi. And uh, you're in the neighborhood. You're in a very good neighborhood. And what you need to do at that point, if that's what's happening, does it feel like that, as if your thoughts are in the back of the head just going past? Okay. If... If that's what's happening, what you need to do at that time is have a little more determination, breath and nothing else, and then you're getting concentrated. You see, you're in the neighborhood, and uh, it's in the right neighborhood, but you haven't quite arrived yet. You know, when we move into a good neighborhood, we've arrived. So a little more determination behind the activity of concentration. Just that little more saying breath only to yourself and then trying to do that. Okay? Try and see what happens. No, you don't need to label in that case. That's fine. Anything else? Yes? When concentrating on the breath, how can you over the tendency to control your breath? Because I find that I make my breath it just happens does it you're not doing it on purpose it just happens that the breath becomes deeper than you usually find it and does it help you to to const to be on it to remain on it yeah. there's nothing wrong with that unless you find yourself um, exhausted from it do you feel exhausted from doing that? No. Oh, it's all right. It's okay. Anything that makes one concentrate. Anything at all. One of my teachers used to say, whatever works is right. Just to get concentrated. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, when you do that, do you actually hear the breath? Is that what helps you to concentrate? Do you hear it? You hear your own breath. Mm -hmm. And does that help you to concentrate then? The hearing of it? Well, I can feel it more in my nose to breathe deeper. Ah, you can feel it better. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. Sounds okay. Doesn't seem anything wrong with that. Anything else? Yes. If the energization is very strong, then it seems to detract from the concentration. Um, so what's the best thing to do? 
energization of what? Um, in the body. Physical feeling of energy in the body. What does that feel like? Um, it's in the head. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, like a, a castle that is a bias around the head. Oh. Oh, well, that occurs in most cases because one is trying too hard. Relax. The thought is in the mind, I'm going to do this, and if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to get it together. And that brings tension to the mind and brings a headache or unpleasant feeling. There's nothing to um, get that uh, strained about. The, The thought in the mind should be, I will try and concentrate to the best of my ability, and if the thoughts interfere, I will label them because that will give me an indication of my thinking process. Finished. That's all. And then go ahead with it. But not that thought of, I must. (coughs) Not putting that pressure on oneself. When you put that pressure on yourself, are you aware of putting that pressure on yourself? No, it's a problem that I don't feel it's connected with trying. I know know the feeling of of trying, and it's not the same. Um, It happens, for example... If, if I walk into a room um, and there's a lot of energy there, then straight away this area of the head feels very tingly but mm-hmm. unable to flow. Well, what do you mean energy in the room? What does energy... Concentration. In concentration. So when people are sitting ready for the practice or um, very aware and their senses are collected, and is that feeling in your head unpleasant? Um, it's not pleasant. It's not like a headache, like the mm-hmm. kind of straining kind of, of sensation. But it, it's there all the time. And it detracts from your concentration on the breath. You can't concentrate because you can feel that feeling so strongly. I can concentrate, but the energy then increases. But it doesn't seem to... The word energy is not meaningful. Can you use another word? I mean, in the Buddhist terminology, energy means one specific thing. So I suppose I'm using it in terms of pity, then um, strong pity. You mean it is a strong feeling, pleasant feeling? Pity is a very strong feeling, pleasant, extremely pleasant. Utterly pleasant. I wouldn't describe it as pleasant. No, well then it's not that. It's a it's a feeling of tension more than anything, is it? And that uh, that feeling of tension then interrupts your concentration on the breath. The more you concentrate, the more tense it becomes. Okay, you can do one of uh, you can do one thing which may be helpful. Um, if it's a strong feeling which is unpleasant, let it go out of the top of your head, namely there where the fontanelle is on a baby, this area here. You let it just let it go out. And if it hasn't gone out the first time, do it two, three times. Just let it go out and go back to watching the breath. It, it, if it's unpleasant, it isn't pity. Pity is most pleasant and also is, uh, is um, translated as interest. 
It's most interesting also. This one doesn't seem to be interesting in a nice way. It seems to be interesting in a not nice way. Is that right? So try and let it go out. See if that helps. It can be that. Do you feel it arising? Do you feel it arising anywhere in the body? Or is it immediately there on the head? I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's a noise with it. Oh, that is most unpleasant, isn't it? Yes. So try and do that. And if it, if that isn't enough, let it go out to both ears also, our top and both ears. Let's see how that works. Okay.